you. Thanks very much, and, and thank you for the reference to the Rhodes Scholarship just three or four years ago. It, uh, I want to clarify, it was actually four or five years ago. Uh, but uh, <laughs> this is also, I mean, I'm frankly a little bit disoriented because um, if you read my column, you know that I tend to be mostly in places where there's no electricity and no plumbing. I tend to be most comfortable with the, the whine of malarial mosquitoes and maybe a little rebel gunfire of approaching rebels in the background. And you know, here I am at the Four Seasons. <laughs> wow. Um, so um, I'll just have to make the best of it, I guess. And uh, just you know, don't tell anybody, please, that I'm, that I'm looking nice and relaxed and comfortable. <laughs> My main message for all of you has to do with public service. And it may be redundant, because I'm sure it's something that a lot of you are interested in already. But I really do hope that those of you who are so talented and have such a voice and have so much going for you will use your voice to amplify that of the voiceless. Now, this year, because it is a presidential election, we tend to think of the way to make a difference being in politics. But I would argue that increasingly, the way one can make a difference is actually to use other tools. And I think that the root of social entrepreneurship is increasingly a path that can make an enormous difference. If you look at, at Wendy Kopp and uh, the way she started teach, um, uh, teach for America, I don't think you've had any Secretary of Education who has made half as much difference in the nation's schools as Wendy Kopp had, has by, by starting uh, Teach for America. A couple of generations ago, or maybe a generation, depending a little on how you, how you count, and, and say in the late 60s. And I think the most interesting and dynamic people who kind of set the tone for the, for the era were the politicians setting the agenda, people like Bobby Kennedy or Gene McCarthy. Half a generation later, in the 1980s, it was maybe Bill Gates or Steve Jobs, the, the entrepreneurs. And today, I would say that it is, indeed, the, the social entrepreneurs. And many of them young, because youth is, in fact, uh, often an advantage, not an impediment to making change in that arena. When my generation didn't like something, this is three or four years ago, uh, we tended to go out in the streets, and our instinctive answer was to hold a protest. And your generation, I think, has figured out much more creatively how to actually make a difference at the grassroots. And one example me toss out is that of actually a student who was here last year as a delegate, a woman called Jennifer Staple. She was concerned with the issue of blindness in the developing world, uh, which is something we tend not to think about, but is a huge constraint. There are uh, so many more people who become blind in the developing world, and it's a huge economic burden because you get uh, artisans, for example, and the peak of their earning power they can't see well enough to earn more money. They lose their earning capacity. The country lose, loses this economic engine. And it all can be remedied by a pair of glasses. And likewise, students, children, they, they can't learn to read if they don't have glasses. And so they become lifelong burdens on the system rather than sources uh, of new output. Well, Jennifer, in her sophomore year uh, at Yale, started a group called Unite for Sight. And the idea was to take all these glasses that Americans toss out because they're a little bit scratched or a little bit old or not quite fashionable enough and ship them to the developing world where they're desperately needed. Well, last year, Unite for Sight uh, provided these services to 200,000 people 
her goal is to take it up to a million people a year. And uh, that is the kind of impact of somebody who you know, started out as a student, uh, younger than you folks are, and yet is having this kind of enormous impact. Now, it's true that this kind of humanitarian intervention tends to be a lot harder than it looks. And I think sometimes the humanitarian community tends to exaggerate the ease with which change can be brought about. Um, and I think that's a danger we should be careful of. In my own work, I've seen just uh, that it's invariably a lot harder than it looks. And let me give you one example of that. One of the issues that is very near and dear to my heart is sex trafficking. And it uh, is something that grabbed hold of my soul, if you will. About a dozen years ago when I was traveling through Cambodia and I went into a brothel to interview uh, two girls, spent the afternoon with them, and one was 14, one was 15. Uh, they were both imprisoned in this brothel. And the 15-year-old had been kidnapped by a neighbor, sold to the brothel. And a week before I got there, her mother had, gone, had tracked her down. The mother had gone to every red light district in the country because if your teenage daughter disappears in Cambodia, the place you look for her is in the brothels. And a week before I got there, the mother had found her in this very brothel. Well, in my naivete, I asked, well, you know, why didn't she take you away? And the girl said, the owner, my owner, said that he paid good money for me and that my mom could buy me back. And uh, the mom didn't have money. And so this girl was going to stay in the brothel until she died of AIDS. And so I've come back at this issue to write about it periodically. And uh, in 2004, I made my own quixotic effort to combined a little bit of journalism and a little bit of, of activism, and I ended up buying two girls uh, from a brothel and taking them back to their villages and trying to start them up uh, with businesses with the help of a local NGO. And in the case of one of these two girls, it, it worked very well, and indeed she just married and, and uh, just last fall had a baby, and she's doing great. In the case of the other one, uh, Srimam, she uh, was set up uh, in a little business. It looked great. And then a few days later, she ran away back to the brothel. And it turned out that she was addicted to meth. She gets the meth from the brothel. We don't know whether the brothel deliberately addicted her to it, but that is something that often happens to create a dependency. And in any case, she was addicted. She tried desperately to overcome that addiction to leave. She couldn't. And I visited her since then a number of times in the brothel. She is going to stay there until she dies, and, and my, my little effort failed. And the reality is that a lot of well-meaning efforts fail. Uh, there are a lot of aid efforts that try to provide scholarships for kids in poor countries. And often, the way they do it is they have the principal uh, determine the scholarship winner. Often, uh, in poor countries, that becomes a license for the principal to extort girls in his school and extort sexual favors from them in exchange for the scholarships. And the donors have no idea that this is going on or the harm and sometimes the HIV infections that they're creating as a result. So it's harder than it looks. But the other point is that we're also learning much more than we, than we were aware before how to make a difference positively and creative, intelligent ways that are cost-effective, applying business models to the humanitarian world. And, and one example, for example, one that we never think of, has to do with iodine. Now, 
iodine micronutrients. Um, Nobody is ever going to have a bumper sticker calling for more iodine in the developing world, but that, in fact, is very much what we need. Um, we associate lack of iodine with goiters, of course, but the much more pervasive problem is that when a woman doesn't have enough iodine in her system and she is pregnant then in the first trimester in particular, and in particular she's carrying a female fetus for reasons that we don't entirely understand, that fetus will be severely mentally and cognitively impaired and will end up with about 10, 10 fewer IQ points than she would otherwise. And this can be remedied by giving women of reproductive age a uh, iodized oil capsule that costs 50 cents and lasts two years, or by iodizing the salt in the region. It's an incredibly simple uh, remedy, and yet one that, that we don't see uh, being used. And so your challenge is to go out there and figure out how to deal with issues of vision, of iodized salt, of sex trafficking, and try to figure out creative, interesting ways to connect donors uh, with those who need these, these things uh, at the ground level. And obviously, one reason to do this is the humanitarian. Uh, benefit of it to the, to the recipients. But another reason, frankly, has to do with the benefit to yourselves. There's been a lot of very interesting work in recent years about happiness and what it is, how we become happy. And it turns out that a lot of the things that we think are going to make us happy or are going to make us unhappy don't. We presume that uh, if we win the lottery or if we win a, win a Rhodes Scholarship, that is really going to make us happy. And indeed, temporarily, that does. If you win the lottery or, I don't know if it's been studied, but when, when it erodes, and I, you, know, you have this enormous spike in joy. If you measure happiness a year later, then there's essentially no difference. And likewise, the things that we fear also make very little difference in the long run. If you, uh, uh, if you uh, become severely impaired, uh, if you get some disability, some accident, end up with a disability, initially there's a huge uh, drop in your happiness. A year later, it pretty much goes away. I mean, so the, uh, at the end of the day, if you leave this room and win the lottery, or if you leave this room and are hit by a car and become disabled, a year from now, your happiness really will be remarkably uh, little changed. But there are a few things that do affect your happiness. And one is some kind of a connection to a larger cause, something beyond yourselves. And that can be anything from religion to a humanitarian issue, but something greater. And so that, I think, is, is where you really can uh, combine serving some kind of larger purpose and also uh, making yourself happier as you do that. Let me leave you um, with the story of a young woman I know, approximately your age, who has worked in uh, Darfur. And I think she's also a reminder that when we tackle some of these issues, we learn a lot about ourselves and about our own countries. This young woman um, was incredibly strong in the middle of the violence of Darfur. And in particular, I remember one time she was working in a village where the Janjaweed was also uh, active. And the Janjaweed, 50 of the Janjaweed, had moved into the compound of one African family. And they had forced the members of this family, in effect, to be their slaves. And finally, my friend uh, 
got the members of this family to talk about what was going on. And there were two sisters in that family. And she, she finally uh, got them to sit down and tell what was going on. And the two sisters told how the Janjaweed were forcing these family members to get firewood for them, to get water for them, uh, to kill their livestock, to feed them, and in the case of the two sisters, to sleep with them. And after several days of this, their father just couldn't take it any, any longer. And he got down, he went to the commander of the Janjaweed in this compound, and he went down on his knees, and he begged him, and he said, we'll do whatever you want. We'll get water, we'll kill our animals, we'll serve you in any way, but please let my daughters go. And then, at that point, the Janjaweed commander had called in these two sisters, had told them what was going on, and then he beheaded their father in front of them. And my friend, this, this young aid worker, she went through that. She helped these, these two sisters. She put up with so much danger and distress on a daily basis. And she, she never broke down or came close to it. And then finally, over Christmas vacation, she came back to the US. And she's in her grandmother's backyard. And she completely breaks down and weeps. And she said that what it was was she saw a bird feeder that her grandma had put up, and a bird feeder that she had seen so many times before growing up and had never really thought about. But when she sees her grandmother, they're putting out a little bit of bird seed so that wild birds may do a little bit better in the winter. And in the meantime, back in Darfur, she's seeing people slaughter each other for no reason. Then that finally made her break down and appreciation of all that she had, and also in turn, in some kind of responsibility for those that she had left behind in Darfur. So I hope that you will go out and tackle some of these larger issues. Those I've talked about are all kinds of others in some kind of much more intelligent way than my generation was ever able to. And that you will not only enrich other people, make yourself happier, but also in some way become surprised and ultimately I think the measure of that is if you can indeed break down at the sight of something as simple and banal as a bird feeder. So uh, thank you very much and I'd be delighted to take questions.